Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, it's David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and I, because it's a Thursday, am in one of those undisclosed locations in a very um, charming, uh, 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 character-rich studio here on McDougal Street in uh, Greenwich Village. And of course, I'm with my co-host here, Ryan Goodman. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. You guys have had a great week. Yeah. I mean, they, they, it, Adam Schiff <laughs> was like speaking the words just security into the impeachment record. That's right. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations yeah. on yeah. that. It's all to Kate Brennan. Uh, and, and of course, congratulations to Kate. Um, and we are joined today by two of our favorites. Uh, in, I assume, Miami, Florida, we have Katie Fang, who uh, not only has her own law firm down there, but you uh, regularly see as a commentator on legal issues on MSNBC. Hi, Katie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And we also have um, uh, one of our oldest uh, guests, not in terms of his chronological age. but, <laughs> I'm, but I'm getting there. Yeah. It is an age before beauty, beauty before the age. Which one are we But Max was one of our very first guests, and, and, and always glad to have him back. Max Boot, who you may uh, know as uh, an author or uh, uh, because of his affiliation with Council on Foreign Relations, or the commentary he does on CNN, or the fights he gets into on Twitter, um, which are always enjoyable, and it's good to have you back, Max. Good to be back, and and, and as you point out, I'm getting older all the time. Um, <laughs> well, that's that's good. He he's our picture of Dorian Gray. Ryan and I do not age, um, which is why we're doing a podcast and not a TV show. Uh, in any event, obviously, the subject to talk about this week uh, is impeachment, and I think the best thing to do is to start with the perceptions that each of you have after a couple of days of listening to this. I personally have been listening to it from the beginning to the end as best I could throughout each day. Um, are and we cheating, David, that we're not listening now? Like, are we cheating? We're cheating. <laughs> look, we're celebrating that we're not listening now. After you listen to it for a certain <laughs> number of hours, there's a kind of repetitive quality. Um, but uh, we're doing a pot. You know, I, a minute ago, I noticed Marsha Blackburn was tweeting. Um, yeah, and, that I, was, and I saw your aunt, that was pretty outrageous that she's tweeting. It's like what, that you're doing a great job there, not obeying the rules. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throw this woman in Twitter jail. So anyway, let's start with you, Katie. You've been watching this. You're a lawyer. You've been commenting on this. We've been anticipating it for a long time. Where do you come out on where we are so far? I mean, you know, I was kind of half saying it in jest. Are we cheating that we're not listening right now? You know, I almost feel guilty when I when I say that it's getting a little repetitive. And and, and I don't mean that in, in any type of derogatory way. And and I do appreciate the repetition, but I do think that um, it's 
I, I, I do think it's been an effective use of the time, um, especially seeing how the GOP has given the huge kibosh on additional documents and witnesses. So we're going back to the well, which was an, which was an amazing well, as you guys will recall from the House. Um, investigation, but and, and ultimate presentation. But you know, it's like it's it's getting a little bit repetitious for me. Um, but I do like the fact that they are effectively weaving in visuals and audio. But who's your ultimate audience is always the thing. When I try a case, if it's judge or jury, I always want to know who my ultimate audience is and how to best and most effectively convey my message and my theme and my position. And who's your ultimate audience? And I guess it just has to be. America, um, because clearly Marsha Blackburn is too busy tweeting, reading a book, doing her nails, or whatever they're doing, um, uh, using your spinners, your finger spinners, and they're not necessarily paying attention if you're a Senate Republican. So I think that it's going really well, but I do think you can expect America, if that is your ultimate audience, uh, to be listening all the time. People work, people have families, people have other obligations, and so I think that um, some of it is being lost. I think some of the message is not coming across. But I do think that the encapsulations that are being done on places like Twitter, Facebook, social media, whatever, I think that they're, that they're being done well. And I think the summaries are, are, are really sending the right message. But I do think that there is a foregone conclusion, unfortunately, to this experience. But I am glad that in our lifetime that we're seeing this historically come to pass. So, Max, um, Democrats um, are, you know, uniformly praising Democrats for putting together a great case, putting together bulletproof uh, evidence, even with, you know, given everything that's been withheld, um, the, you know, ad- admiring their own logic, admiring <laughs> the, uh, the, their, their per- own persuasive skills. Um, but the Republicans uh, seem to have resolved not to care. And, you know, that seems to me to be the sort of the ultimate defense. Um, You know, I mean, Democrats can make the case, but if Republicans say, I don't care, um, then it doesn't matter how good that defense is. Um, What do you think of that? And and what do you think of where we are? Well, it's certainly true that uh, most Republicans are intent on ignoring the evidence. Certainly most Republicans in the Senate but you know not all i mean it's pretty interesting that what rand paul said earlier in the week which was that you know he would love to be able to dismiss the charges right now but they only have about 45 votes so there's at least eight republicans in the senate who refuse to dismiss the charges who at least want to go through some semblance of an actual trial and some of those have said that they're interested in hearing witnesses so you know i do think that uh, the arguments that uh, democrats are making Uh, while they're going to be tuned out by most of the Republicans, there's a handful, four or five, who I think are genuinely perhaps swayable here. And it's also pretty interesting what what, uh, John Kennedy, the uh, Republican senator from Louisiana, said, which is that he's hearing a lot of new things here. And let's, you know, let's not underestimate uh, the kind of information silo in, in which most of the Republicans have trapped themselves, where they actually believe the BS on Fox, and they actually think that the Democrats have no actual evidence, and it's all an anti-Trump conspiracy. So, you know, for us, for those of us who have been, you know, immersed, you might even say pickled in this case for many months, uh, there's not a lot of new stuff here, frankly. Uh, we've heard it all before, but we have to remember that not all of the senators have heard it before. 
And of course, we also have to keep in mind that the audience extends beyond the Senate. Uh, and although there is an element of repetition, uh, I think it is significant that uh, these hearings are dominating the television airwaves, that this is like a block across the TV traffic for these several days, because it's kind of forcing even casual news consumers to at least notice that there is something going on here. And some of them might even tune in and and, and might even be convinced. And I would say, you know, I would remind uh, uh, listeners that when this whole process started in the fall, there were a lot of people, including Democrats, who thought this was all going to backfire, was going to blow up. It was just going to energize the Trump base and create more support for him. Of course, that could still happen, but it really has not happened to date. And it's very significant. I think when you see the polls that have come out this week from CNN, from Pew, saying that a majority of the country thinks that uh, Trump should, in fact, be impeached and removed. That's a bare majority. But even more significant is that by a large majority, people think that he did something wrong. And the pupil, 70 percent say that he definitely or probably acted unethically. 63 percent say Trump definitely or probably broke the law. And by the way, that includes 32 percent of Republicans who say that Trump definitely or probably has done illegal things. Now, it's also the case that even 60 percent of that 32 percent, the Republicans who think he did something illegal, even 60 percent of those are still in favor of Trump's reelection. So this doesn't necessarily translate into the fall. But I think this is kind of an ongoing battle for public opinion. And as I wrote uh, in The Washington Post uh, yesterday, although Democrats are certain to lose in the Senate, there's no question about it, simply because they don't have the numbers. Uh, they're winning the argument in the country, and we'll see what the what the impact of that down the road is. But I think for right now, they are winning because they have the facts and the evidence on their side. And let's not forget, Trump actually did it. I mean, you know, <laughs> we can be very blasé and lose sight of the most basic fact of all. He is guilty, okay? So it's not easy to defend a guilty person, and you're seeing that uh, with, the, with the poor <laughs> performance of the Trump lawyers. So... Max, as usual, is Mr. Sunshine here, Ryan. Um, you, you, uh, you, you also uh, are pickled. I, I can see. I was going to say you, pickled, pickled me pink. <laughs> um, from 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 watching this whole thing, but you know, I think Max makes an interesting point, right? Because I watch it, and my response is, "Oh my God, Adam Schiff is brilliant. This is one of the best presentations mm. I've ever seen." And then I think it's going to you come to nothing. But it didn't produce the backlash, which means it is reaching people. And people have said from the beginning that this is a political trial as well as a, a judicial proceeding in the Senate. Um, and so, you know, in an election where moving a couple of percentage points one way or another could determine the outcome, uh, it seems to me that that's a pretty big deal and uh, plenty of reason for bringing the case. Um, you know, now, I, I can think of a flip side of that. What do you think of where we are? So um, I agree that I think the main audience here is the public opinion. It's a battle for public opinion. And it's America, um, as Katie had put it, that uh, is the true audience at this moment. And if they are convinced, if they shift uh, in a certain direction, then I think we need 
politicians and Senate Republicans might shift to. And that's in part why I think there's some cracks within McConnell's control over some of the rules and his ability to just completely bar uh, the idea of any witnesses um, is still very much an open question. So, uh, and I do think that the uh, formidable nature of the shift presentations is is penetrating. It's doing something. And it's and it's also because the nation is kind of focused on this as the uh, issue of the day and the week. Um, and it might become even more pronounced because after it flips over to the president's team, and I also agree, I do not envy them as lawyers. Like, how do you present, you know, this horrific, <laughs> horrible case when your client did it? Um, lying seems to be a big part of that. But Yeah, yeah. And lying works. Which with, is just horrific. Yeah. Horrific uh, as lawyers are doing that with straight faces. But go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. yeah, on the floor of the Senate. Um, some to the media during the breaks, secolo, but then right on the floor of the Senate, uh, straight up lies. Um, and I just think the next issue for me is just let's do it like one step at a time. And the next step is the major vote as to whether or not they will call for witnesses, because I think that might shift things in a very significant direction if we hear from uh, John Bolton within the coming weeks. Uh, well, that's interesting. It certainly would have a big political effect. I also think there'd be a poli- big political effect if 53 members of the Republican Party or 52 or 51 say, nah, no witnesses, let's shut this thing down. Because that, I think, is going to read to a lot of people like a cover-up. Um, Katie, there's some other legal um, issues that I think are associated with this. Um One is what happens if there is an acquittal. If there is an acquittal, Mm -hmm. it's not just, you know, this is over. The president says, I was vindicated. The president says, what I was doing was okay. The president says, I can solicit foreign interference. I can do these things. The president probably says to himself, well, Mitch in the Senate has my back. There's probably not much that they can get me for. Um, going forward. And so he takes it as license. But so too will the next president. You know, so that, you know, there is a kind of a message, uh, of, you know, a precedent within the small body of impeachment mm-hmm. law uh, that's being set here. The, 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 you know, the next time there's a trial, somebody might say, no witnesses, no evidence. You know, we might have crossed, you know, sort of jumped the shark in the legal concept of an impeachment trial, where it used to be to pursue justice, um, and it's now just accepted that it's purely a political calculus, and if you have enough votes, the guy's guilty, and if you don't, he's not. Well, you raise a really interesting point, because the thing that I've always been harping on since before this officially launched in terms of this impeachment process was the fact that there is a just this absurd absence of guiding procedure and substantive law concerning impeachment. We have Senate rules, and those are the kind of antiquated ones that the current impeachment trial have been traveling under. But because 
And I don't know what the inherent calculus ended up being. Maybe it was purely driven by time considerations. But because you didn't see an attempt to obtain rulings from as high up as perhaps our Supreme Court when it came to witness testimony, when it came to subpoenas, when it came to issues such as that, I think that we are once again stuck with having to look back historically to prior impeachment trials to find that precedent that you speak of. The Clinton trial was the one that was looked to for purposes of the McConnell proposed resolution in terms of timing, et cetera. But, you know, as we saw in the Clinton trial, though, there were witnesses presented by way of videotaped deposition testimony. So to the extent that, unfortunately, if you want to change the rules, they have to be done um, apparently not through the court, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of stuck with how the Senate rules currently speak. Um, I think that I don't know if this necessarily sets a precedent, David, for future presidents, because I think that it depends on the body politic. I think it depends upon what that Senate looks like in the future scenario of a president that perhaps faces an impeachment um, hearing, an impeachment trial. But I would serve as a reminder, though, right now to, to everyone who's listening, that this is not the end, though, for Donald Trump. I mean, there's a lot of people that think that this will maybe be him getting the carte blanche that he needs to just run amok. But please recall, there are several cases that are still pending and several investigations that remain pending that could fell him. And my optimism has always been driven by the idea that if you keep chip, chip, chipping away at his really, um, you know, horrid foundation, that eventually the kingdom will topple. And I do think that that is a very real possibility. This was a more direct way of eliminating him um, in light of the OLC memo, in light of the Mueller report, in light of how all of that kind of came to pass in terms of not being able to, quote, indict a sitting president. But I, so, so impeachment would have been an awesome way to get rid of him now. But I do maintain some hope and faith that eventually the process will play out in a way, but hopefully done before November of this year. Um, who knows? But I do think that the failure to seek some type of substantive judicial kind of uh, opinions that created case law precedent that could be relied upon for future impeachment um, hearings and trials does create a little bit of a pickle um, moving forward. So, Max, you know, we're b both, you know, from a national security background, this is the first impeachment that actually has national security as uh, a centerpiece. Uh, and so one set of the precedents uh, affect U.S. presidents, the Senate, the U.S. people, but another set of precedents affect countries around the world. Uh, they get a message from this. They get a message from the Mueller report. The message from the Mueller report was collusion is okay, um, provided you don't violate a specific law. Um, that this president likes it, and he and he, and, he, and he encourages it, and he rewards those who follow through with it. I mean, after all, and you know, I, one of the things that strikes me as kind of interesting about this whole impeachment thing is that there has been a very sort of light touch on the fact that the principal beneficiary of withholding uh, aid to Ukraine, $390 million, and of withholding a White House meeting for as long as it went on is Russia. Um, and, you know, this is our, you know, leading adversary in the world uh, uh, and and certainly has a history with 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 Trump. But but I think the, the bigger question is when this trial is over and Trump gets off, 
uh, and the Mueller report came out the way that it did. What do you think the message is to Erdogan, to Mohammed bin Salman, to uh, the Chinese, to others who want to get into the good graces of Trump? You know, what are, what are the national security consequences of an acquittal? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it's going to be hard to answer that right away because, you know, I think what really counts is not whether he's acquitted or not because we know he's going to be acquitted. The question is, is he going to be reelected? Is that going to then be seen as a vindication of his conduct if that is in fact the case? And, you know, frankly, you know, if I had to bet right now, I would bet he actually will be reelected looking at the at the matchups in the battleground states. Uh, they look pretty pretty grim from my perspective. So I think there's a good chance that Trump could be reelected. And, you know, having survived impeachment, he will then take this as uh, an endorsement of everything that he has done, an invitation to do 10 times more in the second term, you know, probably to pave the way uh, to be succeeded by Donald Trump Jr. Uh, you know, there have been jokes that the next Republican primary might pit, might pit Ivanka versus Trump Jr. And that's not uh, entirely a, a crazy thought at the, at the rate that we're going towards, you know, kind of a uh, a, uh, a a quasi authoritarian situation or or quasi uh, king uh, in the White House. And so obviously that, you know, if that's in fact the way that it plays out, this is going to send, you know, a message that undermines everything the United States has done for 70 years uh, in in you know, not not always consistently, but generally to promote democracy, freedom, human rights, press freedom, and so forth. And I mean, it's already we, you know, Trump's conduct has already undermined all those messages, and he's just not willing to stand up for, uh, you know, American ideals. Uh, you know, he didn't do anything after uh, Jamal Khashoggi was was murdered by the Saudi regime. He doesn't care that the Saudi Crown Prince hacked into Jeff Bezos's cell phone. I mean, none of this stuff concerns him in the slightest. Um, so already the damage is being done. I think it'll be greatly aggravated if, in fact, he is seen as getting away with this. But it's not necess- it's not a foregone conclusion that he will, in fact, get away with this because, you know, in fact, uh, if if the Senate acquits him but doesn't uh, really deliver an exoneration in the eyes of the public, which is kind of the way that we're headed right now, and if Trump winds up losing in November, which is possible. Again, I, it's not the way I would bet, but it's certainly possible that he's going to lose in November, and it's going to be a close election, I think, no matter what. In, 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 in that case, I think it will deliver a greater message of accountability. Uh, and I think that there is a, you know, I was in favor of, of impeachment from the get-go, even knowing that it was certain to result in his acquittal, because I do think that there is some deterrence effect uh, with future presidents. I mean, clearly Trump does not like being impeached, okay? I mean, there were people who said, oh, it's exactly what he wants to motivate his base, but you just have to look at how crazy he's acting. I mean, yesterday was, you know, his his most tweeted, his top tweet day ever, the most tweets that he's ever sent, which is basically like a brain scan of, of how feverish <laughs> he is on that day. Uh, he's pretty feverish right now. He's pretty aggravated because he sees this as a mark against him. He knows, he knows this is going to be in the first paragraph of his obituary, the fact that he was impeached. So I think that there is some deterrent value simply from the process of impeachment, even even knowing that he's going to be acquitted. But I think the long-term ramifications have yet to be determined, and a lot of it will really turn on whether he wins re-election or not. 
I, th- I think Max just paid me back for saying at the beginning that he was b- being a sunny optimist. <laughs> um, He's looking for balance, his, the yin to the yang. Yeah, the yin to the yang. And I think, you know, the, the prospect of the Trump dynasty um, uh, certainly provides that. But, you know, Ryan, as, 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 we, as we look at this, you know, there, there are a couple of other factors. And I want to just pick up one of the narrow ones that... Um, you know, has been on my mind, you know, on the first night of this thing, late in the night, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, you know, admonished the both the Democrats and the Republicans for conduct unbecoming to the great world's greatest deliberative body. <laughs> um, now, you know, that's that's, you know, just conceptually, it's kind of a big stretch. I don't think the Senate has been the world's greatest deliberative body in a long, long time. But having having said that, he set a precedent, which is that he feels okay making a comment about the nature of the proceeding. But he was speaking about decorum. There are lawyers lying in front of him. There is a process that is supposed to be objective where a number of the people who signed an oath saying they were going to be objective have said they're not going to be objective. There is a a, a trial going on without evidence um, or without witnesses, um, which runs contrary to uh, the entire history of trials, you know, uh, outside of perhaps the Soviet Union. Um, And he hasn't said anything about that. Um, where do you come out on, you know, what's his role? Or, I mean, is he just a bump in a log? Or you know, now that he's talked, <laughs> you know, is his silence on those things a tacit acceptance of them? Right. I mean, I thought that maybe there was some hope that his uh, intervening and actually uttering something said that he was not a potted plant and that he might be more um, interventionist or or the like especially if he's going to kind of go into the areas of norms, Um, since these other issues are about not necessarily formal rules, um, though some of them are like lying to Congress. (laughs) It's a formal federal crime. But um, that there might be something more to it, but he seems to be doing nothing um, at this point. And uh, hopefully maybe he's saving um, it for other decision points, and there are potentially some serious decision points coming along the way, like um, can the Trump lawyers try to exclude evidence on the basis of hearsay? Because I think that's just one thing that's been largely overlooked in the uh, McConnell amendments that came from Susan Collins is a kind of pernicious insertion of a new word into the rules that the evidence can be excluded based on hearsay, which is kind of nutty for an impeachment trial to exclude evidence. There's so many different ways in which that doesn't fit for an impeachment trial. Particularly think, if you're excluding all evidence to begin with. Right. <laughs> you, right. You, <laughs> Did you hear it? I didn't say <laughs> um, So there's, that's a decision point for him. Um, the uh, executive privilege, so if Bolton shows up and then there has to be a determination as to whether or not he can assert executive privilege to block answering certain questions, that might be a point for the Chief Justice. So there's hope that maybe he's saving it for more important moments, and he's already already laid the groundwork that he's not going to just be there as a potted plant. But right now, he seems to be a potted plant. And, and and you know another one that I think you didn't mention in a sense, but we mentioned it earlier, 
in the podcast, which is uh, senators, more, much more on the Republican side, openly defying one very clear rule that they're supposed to remain in the chamber. And some of them are out there tweeting or going on Fox News, uh, not going to the bathroom, but rather going on Fox News uh, outside of the chamber. I think that's um, that's an affront. I mean, if you're going to talk about decorum, uh, that's an affront. They're supposed to be there like jurors. Uh, yeah. If I could, if I could just jump in, David. Just one, one, one point to add to what Ryan said. I mean, you were talking about the, uh, the admonition that that the Chief Justice delivered to uh, Jerry Nadler and uh, Pat Cipollone on uh, two, late on Tuesday night, or I guess early Wednesday morning. And I do think that was, so far, the only real misstep we've seen on the part of the House impeachment managers, who I think have been tremendous, just tremendous advocates, much more impressive than the other side, especially Adam Schiff, you know, getting universal praise for uh, a tour de force of, of, of oratory. And I think uh, Hakeem Jeffries has been terrific, very persuasive, and, and all the others. But I think Jerry Nadler screwed up by, you know, going over the line and saying Republicans were guilty of a treacherous vote, a shameful cover-up, et cetera, which, A, violates the, the Senate decorum rules, but I think more importantly, uh, it's... Uh, uh, it's kind of giving the back of his hand to the handful of Republican senators that he actually needs to convince. There are, I think, four or five who are genuinely convincible, at least on the issue of witnesses, maybe even on the issue of impeachment. And so you don't want to insult those uh, those wavering voters. You want to try to bring them on board. And so I think, you know, I think there's a reason why Speaker Pelosi gave gave Adam Schiff the lead role here and not Chairman Nadler, because, you know, everybody has seen that. Uh, that uh, Congressman Schiff is is much more impressive in these settings. Yeah, although I have to say, in in fairness to Chairman Nadler, I think behind the scenes he was really a driving force towards getting towards impeachment uh, among the various chairmen there. He, you know, he's a he's he played a strong uh, role. Uh, missteps aside, okay. So we've just got uh, three minutes left here, and what I'd like to do is, you know, I mean, we consider the deep state radio audience to be one of the most well-informed audiences out there. And the reason is that we try to help them with things. And I'd like to go to each of you first, Katie, and then I'll go to Max, and then I'll go to Ryan. And I'd like, in a minute each, um, to give one or two things that you think they, as viewers, should look for from this trial over the course of the next couple of weeks that they may or may not have been told to look for, uh, you know, in other kinds of commentary. But you know, doesn't have to be comprehensive, but something that you're going to look at to, you know, with regard to the longer term implications of this. Let me start with you, Katie. Well, I think that the most obvious thing is that we we have to see whether or not, and, and I, I hold out hope for this, that we do end up having a vote that allows for um, some type of intervention, maybe by somebody like Chief Justice Roberts, where you end up having some type of ruling or something, where you end up having documents and witnesses, which I don't think we're going to get. But I think what, it, what you need to do is I think that you need to look and see whether or not there is, over the weekend, some type of more outspoken response that's coming from the GOP senators that are sitting in there. They're supposed to be muzzled. They're supposed to be sitting and paying attention. But let's see what happens over the weekend when they do the Sunday morning shows or when they're running around and they're, they're being interviewed. And let's watch and very much listen to what they have to say in terms of where they think this thing is going. I think that 
the other thing that maybe a little bit more long term that we could be looking for that comes out of this particular impeachment trial dovetails a little bit with what you guys just talked about, which is Chief Justice Roberts is kind of hampered in terms of what he can and cannot do in the confines and the auspices of this particular trial. But he's always looked to as potentially being a swing vote on SCOTUS or sometimes somebody who may be just guaranteed to be a conservative vote for Trump. Um, he may have the opportunity, like you guys noted, to be able to rule on some significant issues sitting on SCOTUS. It's not like he's recused from being able to, to rule on these things. And so I think somebody like Chief Justice Roberts is going to see how the sausage was made. He's not stupid. Um, and he sees the type of person that Trump is and the things that have happened. So maybe what you're going to see is a beneficial long-term result or effect where you have a more aware Chief Justice on SCOTUS that eventually helps all of us in the long run. Great. Max, 60 seconds. No, really interesting point by Katie. I hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense. I mean, I would say... Uh, that one thing that I'm looking for is, you know, what is the Republican argument going to be in defense of Donald Trump? I mean, there is no good argument in defense of Trump, but there are some arguments that are worse than others. And I think the most defensible argument you can make for Trump is, you know, he did bad stuff. He shouldn't have uh, put the pressure on the Ukrainians to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. It was improper. It was wrong. It was an abuse of power. But it's not we shouldn't you know impeach and remove him right now let the voters deal with it in november that's actually the most honest argument you can make and to the credit of national review they actually made that argument in an editorial this week and we at first heard some republicans in the house congressman Wolhard and others kind of make that argument saying this is troubling but not necessarily impeachable and that all has been silenced now because the official party line coming from the white house is it was a perfect phone call he did nothing wrong and sadly, you're seeing the Republicans in both chambers kind of line up like zombies to echo this inane Trump talking point. And I will be curious to see uh, if any Republicans in the Senate actually take a more honest approach to his misgiving. And of course, also to see uh, if any Republicans in the Senate ultimately wind up voting to impeach. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. Maybe you'll get one or two votes at most. but. If you could actually get four Republicans in the Senate voting to impeach, I think that would be a huge defeat for Donald Trump because it would mean that a majority of the Senate voted to impeach. It's still not enough, to, nearly enough to remove him, of course. But if you could at least say there's a bipartisan majority, I think that would undermine his messaging. And I'm not optimistic that's going to happen. But if it did happen, I think that would be pretty big. Yes, indeed. 60 seconds, Ryan. So I was going to say the same thing as Max, that we've been talking most of the time about acquittal versus conviction, and I think the important thing is if there's a majority and it's bipartisan that votes to convict. It's a, it's a devastating impact to the president. And uh, the other part that I would look for, it's, you know, it's a, not necessarily a high likelihood, but who are the Republicans that might break? Who might be the kind of Larry Hogan of today? Larry Hogan was a conservative Republican on the House Judiciary Committee who voted against Nixon and in favor of the Articles of Impeachment. And one of the things that happened when there was a break from McConnell on the rules, it wasn't just um, some of the moderate, uh, vulnerable Republicans, but it was people like Rob Portman and Lamar Alexander. Are those the kinds of people that might might uh, stand up for the institution at the end of the day and we get a majority vote that's bipartisan? Yeah, and I think that the only thing that I would add to this is that there is a political consequence. It's, a, it's an election year. 
the Democrat is now assured of running against a candidate who has been impeached. That's never happened in American history. No one has ever run against a president who has been impeached. Uh, Andrew Johnson wanted to run for president in 1868, and he went into the Democratic convention thinking he had a shot, um, and he ended up in like the 11th or 12th round of voting with only four votes. He was not renominated. Now, I don't think that's going to happen to Trump, uh, but I do think you're going to have a damaged candidate, which gets to the second point that I think everybody here has made, and that is uh, the trial is binary. He's acquitted or he is convicted. But the consequences of the trial are not binary. The consequences of the trial cover a spectrum. And one of the things on the spectrum is the damage done to Trump. Uh, and is he wounded? Is there you know, a general consensus that he did something wrong? Um, uh, does it make people a little uncomfortable with him as a candidate? Of course, there's other damage. There's damage done to the presidency if he's acquitted. There's damage done to the institution of the Senate if he's acquitted. There's damage done if he perceives that he has license now to proceed. So those things need to be looked at, too. But I do think one of the big things that people need to do is stop looking at the uh, uh, impeachment as a binary outcome and start looking at it as something that covers a whole range of possibilities. I think this has been great to have a conversation with such um, uh, uh, knowledgeable and uh, 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 articulate and insightful uh, guests. And so I want to thank you, Katie, for joining us. And I want to thank you, Max. And I hope both of you come back soon. And uh, Ryan, I hope you come back next week. And I uh, I, I want to thank you for uh, uh, this again. I do want to say one last thing, um, which uh, I said on Twitter, if any of you out there are following me on Twitter, um, unsolicited. But I was very proud when Adam Schiff said just security. Uh, and we had Kate Brannon in here talking about her scoop last week. Uh, just Security, which is the organization that Ryan uh, is uh, the co-editor of, uh, does amazing work. Uh, it is a not-for-profit organization. It's justsecurity.org. And if you go there and you look at the top of the page, there's a little red button that says donate. And you can donate to them, and they may have other scoops in the future. Or Ryan may just be better dressed at these meetings. I don't know what's going to be a consequence of it, but I think you should support them. They're doing great work. Uh, do you want to know more about what we're doing? Go to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, you can register there, and you can also find out about a big event that we're doing with Just Security and with some other folks on May 14th. And we're going to roll out over the next few days information about that event. And you can get that information first. If you register at our website and you give us our email, we'll be able to not only tell you about it, but we can give you a discount. We can give you first come first serve ability to go and attend a live event, which is like nothing else that anybody is doing. And in this year is absolutely essential. So this is the dsrnetwork.com or justsecurity.org or follow Max or follow Katie, wherever they are. We'll see you again on Monday. Bye-bye. <laughs>